This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got two special guests on the podcast. That is Brian Andrews and Jeff Wilson. So Andrews and Wilson are the best-selling co-author team of the Tier 1 Thriller series, Sons of Valor, and the Shepherd series. And we're going to be talking about the latest book, the second book in the Shepherd series called Dark Angel. We're going to be spending a lot of time on that today. Now, these guys are a man's podcast veterans. They were on episodes 235 and 228. So on one of those episodes, we talked about what had just happened in Afghanistan. And then on the other episode, we talked more about the first book in the Shepherd series, kind of how they write as a co-author team. Both of these guys are United States military veterans. And in this episode, we we went into a lot of different areas, but one thing I did that was different about this episode is I separated them. So last time we had them in the same area and that's how they do a, a lot of their interviews is they're, they're both in kind of their own area. And then we, you know, we're talking to them both at the same time, but I wanted to ask some of them, some of the same questions to both of them, but separately just to kind of see what they would say. And then we got to poke fun at each other uh, for, for a lot of that. So that was a lot of fun. And so I asked them essentially the same questions for both interviews, but it's going to be very, very interesting to hear how differently they perceive certain things because in this episode we talk about Afghanistan we talk about Ukraine we talk about the overall state of the United States military and some of the things that are changing with you know diversity equity inclusion and, and the lowering of standards but then we get into you know how they got hooked up and how they you know figured out how they could write books together we get into dark angel kind of the the I guess how they deal with the faith element of their books while also making the books very, very violent. We talked about the state of masculinity and both of them gave very, very different answers as to kind of what the current state of masculinity is in our culture. And then I did, what would you say to someone that said with both of them at the end? And we get into a lot of great subject matter. So I really enjoyed my time with them. And so we'll be giving you the interview with Jeff Wilson first, and then we'll switch it over to Brian Andrews. So guys stick around because their answers are amazing. And it's also amazing how well they work together and how different some of their answers are. So should be interesting for you, but I won't keep them from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Jeff Wilson, welcome back to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Great to be here, man. I was looking forward to talking to you. Congratulations to you. I know you got a lot going on right now. Thank you very much. Yeah, I got the new baby here, so I don't know when this is going to come out, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk to my audience before then, but I will give them a big, long update as to the expansion of the Thompson family. But yeah, I mean, we're making a habit of this. This is your third appearance here on this show. And so we'll see what kind of trouble we can get into. And then we'll we'll talk with your buddy here in a second. But I, I've heard you, you were just telling me off air, you have a bunch of exciting updates. And the funny thing about it is how you framed it. You were praying for blessings from God and you're praying for all these great and cool things to happen. But now you're doing, you're getting all these cool opportunities, but now you got to do the work. So do if the work good, right? Yeah. Just give me like a brief overview of some of the cool stuff that you have since the last time we talked to you. Sure. Well, the biggest thing is, you know, I think we talked to you, we were, was just ahead of the release of the first book in uh, the Shepherd series, Dark and right. Accept. And uh, that book did great. It was, you know, you're always, you're always wondering how it's going to be received with a, with your existing fan base when you do something a little different, but people loved it. So that was fun. Uh, the second book is uh, probably out by the time this airs mm. uh, and the third book comes out in the fall. So that's doing great. We actually are excited to announce that Tyndale signed another three book deal with us. So there'll be 
at least six books in that series. So that's fun. Sons of Valor still going strong. The next book in that one comes out in June. And we finally, people can stop emailing us because we finally got another tier one book done. Dempsey book seven comes out next, uh, next February. Um, and then we've got a new techno thriller series coming out next year too, starting with Sandbox. So lots going on in the writing, but we've also got some new opportunities. I think we told you before, we sort of look at ourselves more as storytellers than novelists. And we've been looking mm-hmm. for ways to branch out into other forms of media. And uh, like you said, we were praying about it, that we would not just get opportunity, but get those right opportunities and the right relationships. Cause you know, it's a crazy world out there. And uh, that's coming through. I, we can't get into a lot of detail, but we've signed a deal on a, uh, a feature film based on a, uh, one of our unpublished projects that comes out in a couple of years. Um, and we're negotiating a TV, another TV deal in addition to the one we have with Shepard. So, yeah, it's um, but yeah, like you pointed out, now you got to do the work, right? It's like, right. So are you, you guys are just really bored a lot. Is that kind of how it goes? It's like, Hey, we haven't written a book in seven minutes. Maybe we should like crank out another book. But before we get too much into the writing stuff and all that, which we will get into guys, uh, we did talk a little bit on this podcast. We had you guys on to talk really right in the aftermath of the initial drawdown in, in Afghanistan. And we got your opinions on that, but that's everyone's knee jerk opinions. And so to a degree, I kind of set you guys up uh, unintentionally to be like, Hey, this, this news is 17 minutes old. How about you give me your complete, uh, uh, you know, rundown of what you think's going on. But now that we've had some time to breathe in terms of what's going on with Afghanistan, you know, we're, we're coming up, you know, later on the summer will be one year since the pullout. What, what are kind of your feelings as to what happened now that we've, the dust has kind of settled a little bit, not for the people of Afghanistan, obviously, uh, but about kind of how the, the United States is maybe perceived now around the world because of what we did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, like you said, I remember that so vividly. We, um, we uh, called for people to be praying for veterans who were going to be impacted by that because it was impactful. I know for me personally and a lot of other people that left friends and blood and treasure on the battlefield and then to pull out the way we did. I, I would say that my opinion on that has not changed much, um, if at all, uh, in terms of, you know, as you know, we try to stay out of the politics of it in terms of partisan politics. But whatever you're leaning, whatever your party there's not really a possibility to say, wow, that went well. Right. I mean, I, it just, it didn't go well. It was done. It was done poorly. Americans lost their lives. Americans and allies were left behind. Um, and the country that we spent enormous amounts of money, blood and, uh, personal sacrifice in is now descended into chaos. So like literally what else can there be? be to say. Um, it's, it's just horrible. I have seen the impact that it's had on our fellow veterans, uh, and it's significant. Uh, as, as you and I predicted on that, mm-hmm. on that interview, we knew that the, the six months to a year following that were going to be really difficult for a lot of people. You know, you were sort of nursing yourself along with your issues, saying, well, at least we did something important. And when that was pulled out from some of, some of these guys and girls, it was devastating. So we're seeing that. We're seeing that in uh, in the ministry, the military ministry that we lead in Tampa, and we're seeing it in just in the veterans community uh, in general. In terms of you know how we're perceived in the world, um, I tend to let the diplomats and the talking heads argue about that. But again, common sense. Like, would you partner with me if I <laughs> right? So yeah. uh, I, I just don't. I just don't think there's anything controversial here. I think no matter what your political leaning, this was. A catastrophe. Who's to blame? The timing, you know, information, intel. They can argue about that all they want, but anybody that tries to pretend like this was done well is thinks we're stupid, I guess. 
Well, I think it's okay to question the decision-making of the people that are in power, whether you want to hang this around the neck of Joe Biden or his cabinet, which is actually running the show or the generals or, or whatever that type of thing is. But the thing that's scary about that is the same crew the same smart crew of people that that are our moral betters, right, are also dealing with the this current situation that's going on with Ukraine. Now, we're not dealing with it, you know, as we did in Afghanistan, because we don't have boots on the ground, at least uh, that we know of, and at least not yet. But and again, it's hard to even comment on the situation in Ukraine, because who do you listen to? Which right. news outlet, like which which thing that turned out to be false do you actually believe now and just don't haven't gotten the update? But just in general, I know we're being very, very broad brush because we don't have all the time in the world today. But what are your thoughts on the situation currently going yeah. on in Ukraine and what we could do about it? We actually have a lot of opinions on it uh, for reasons I'll outline in a minute. But I want to I want to latch on to something you said that really resonates with me. You know, we we are allowed to question. We are allowed to to raise these issues. I would argue that it's bigger than that. It's not just a right that we have, it's a responsibility we have. The entire fabric of America is founded on the idea that we are a country run by you and me. We're a country run by its people. And so the day you stop asking questions, the day you stop you know, holding people accountable is the day you've completely obviated your responsibility as an American citizen for the running of the country. Um, we're a, we're a uh, employee owned company, right, in America. We all have a share and a stake and we have a responsibility to make it succeed. So I really like that you said that, that, that resonated with me a lot. In terms of Ukraine, you know, Brian, I'm, I'm going to be interested to hear what Brian says. And, you know, if we don't take an opportunity to make fun of him at some point, then that's an opportunity. We yeah. have to. It's because we're always on these together, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. That's why I separated you, because I want you all to talk trash about each other. I'm trying to create some disputes so that we can break you all up to see if we can do a reunion tour. There you you know, this is a whole big thing I'm trying to think. Um, what's interesting about uh, the way things unfolded in the early stages of the war in Ukraine is um, we are not the smartest people. We're not prescient people, but we do observe what's going on. And uh, we wrote a book in 2019 called Collateral. And in that book, Russia amassed troops on the uh, eastern border of Ukraine. They had already taken Crimea, of course. They, yes, they staged, as you remember, they staged an incident that made them the peacekeepers and protecting Russian interests. And it unfolded almost chapter by chapter the way we wrote in Collateral. The difference was in Collateral, we had an organization and a government invested in the security of Ukraine. And so they were beat back and defeated. Um, and so that's, that's the question. What's the right answer? I, I get the you know, the nuclear threat. I get that. Um, but anybody that is observing the leadership in Russia, you know, this isn't us against the Russian people. I want to start by saying that um, the Russian people, by and large, as you've seen in the media, they're not for this either. Right. Like so uh, this isn't Russia. This is a few crazy people in charge of Russia uh, that are responsible for this. Um, and we have to be aware of that. And so the idea that it's like, well, we don't want to upset the bully because then he'll beat us up. You were in, you were a kid, you were in the schoolyard. What inspires a bully to beat more kids up? Letting him beat some kids up, right? And so if we think we're going to be safer by not stopping things, whether it's through a, a UN force or whether it's through the EU or armed support, direct support, I'm not the expert to decide what it should look like. But if we don't have an active role in stopping this, and we think that by just letting him take what he wants in Ukraine, mm -hmm. we'll somehow be safer... That's insane. That's madness. 
Again, it's it's the same people that are just trying to tell you, look, we're smarter than you. But it, there's something virtuous about someone that says, hey, I thought, like I am a smart person, I'm intelligent, but I thought this thing and did this thing and it turned out being really to be really, really stupid. It doesn't seem like anyone in government on either side of the aisle, frankly, has the capability of being like, yeah, I was really, really dumb. I didn't, I, if I could go back, I would not make this dumb decision. But I think this all, and this, this will be the last question and then we'll get into the book stuff. I feel like as an outsider, right, having not served in the military, having, you know, not even being tangentially involved with the current military, that the United States military is not focused on the right things. At least the things that we're seeing from government is they seem to be focused on diversity and inclusion and making a diverse force and, you know, making it to where men and women can kind of have some of the same standards. And let's change the physical standards so more people, especially women, can pass. And it seems like we should be worried about lethality over everything. And we should be like, if every single soldier looked the exact same, but we were the baddest military on the planet, I think that should be the goal. But that that's what it looks like as a civvy looking in on this world is it's like, what are we doing? Like China and Russia aren't trying to like make a diverse fighting force. They're trying to make a lethal fighting force. Like, am I crazy? No, you're not crazy at all. I, I will say that I probably fall somewhere in the middle having served. I think that we are stronger when there's diverse opportunity. Um, for sure. But the idea that we have to focus on one or the other is madness, right? That, and so I agree with you. It shouldn't be a social experiment by any stretch of the imagination. Do I think that a special operations force is better when it has diversity of thought, diversity of culture, diversity of opinion? I do, because you bring different things to the table, but that can't be your focus. You have to say, here's the mission. Here's what we need to accomplish it. Who can best accomplish that mission? And here's the standard. And you have to meet the standard. And move forward. Now, the flip side of that is if you as a fighting force see outright discrimination that there are people who are qualified for jobs and they're not getting them because of their sex or their race, or that's wrong. And you as a, as a military need to address it immediately because that degrades the force, right? But that's not what's going on. No. Uh, and so I agree with you. Our, the focus of the military should be to have the most lethal fighting force. The person that gets selected for pilot training should be the guy that is going to be the best or girl that's going to be the best fighter pilot. Should there be women? Sure. As long as they're qualified, as long as they can do the job and as long as they can contribute and they have a mission and team before self attitude, whether you're a man, a woman or a a mermaid, if you're coming into the military to prove something about mermaids, you have no business there. If you're coming because you want to serve the country and you want to do something and you have the skills to do it, you should be afforded that opportunity. So that I say that not to disagree with you in any way, mm-hmm. but we can walk and chew gum. Like you can make sure there's no discrimination while building the most lethal fighting force on the planet. So yes, they've lost their focus. It needs to be fixed uh, before it's too late, um, but it's not impossible to do both these things. Well, it's okay to disagree with me, but not that much because it's my show and that'd be rude. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to kick you off of my own show. But like one day when, when we're sitting down, we'll we'll have a scotch and discuss this. I think it's indicative of a sick society when they let their women fight their wars. And so that's just kind of a general way of saying things. And I mean that in forward-facing combat roles. I think that that is, that is something that is not their calling, that, that is a, they have a separate calling to society and to, to basically worship uh, a a all-knowing and all-powerful God is not to be in the fighting force that is trying to push back darkness. But again, like I said, 
we could spend the rest of our time today just talking about that. And that is not why we're here. Let's well, get into the world. Be, of- dude, it would be a rich conversation that I look forward to having because we're probably not so far on our opinion on that, on that subject um, with a couple little tweaks, but, um, and, and those are the conversations that are fun, right? And those are the best ones to have scotch in one hand and a cigar in the other. So we'll make sure that we put that on the calendar, but so we can pay the bills. Let's talk about y'all's writing career. And for anyone that has not listened to your two previous appearances on this podcast, first of all, how dare you, how dare you not have listened to my show since day one come on guys what is wrong with you but for those people that are a little bit behind as of right now how did you and brian get hooked up you know and and how does a co-writing process work on the books that you guys produce because obviously most people don't do that there's individual writers but you guys are co-authoring these books take us through all that yeah so the answer to both questions is is linked to the same thing and that's that we uh we share a history of service we're both navy veterans um we met at um International Thriller Writers has a meeting every summer. We're actually looking forward to it coming up the last week in May, early June, called Thriller Fest in New York. And all the writers get together. Uh, but the long story short, the way we met, my very first time at Thriller Fest, my wife Wendy and I went. We were very excited. We were in the city. I was a debut author. My first novel had come out. My second one was almost out. And so they had this debut author program. So we came to be part of that. But I will tell you that um, I don't, how do I say this? I don't, it's not that I don't socialize well. I don't enjoy social situations, partly because of past experiences and stuff. I do well there, but it's not my favorite thing. So I'm sitting in yeah. the hotel room. I'm flipping through the, uh, you know, they give you a little bulletin with all the people that are going to be there. This sounds mm-hmm. psychotic, but I'm like memorizing the faces of the guys that are military. Like, I'm like, all right, if I got to go to this cocktail party with a bunch of people I don't know who are writers and editors, if there's a few mills, right? So Brian was one of the faces like, oh, he was Navy and there were a few others. And so, uh, you know, when he tells it, I sound even more like a stalker. But um, <laughs> so I, we go to this cocktail party on the opening night and sure enough, I see him there. He's like, I was like, I think that's that Brian Andrews guy. He's the Navy submarine officer. And he was sitting by himself when I usually tell it, he's crying in his beer. But since he, right, right. Since he can't defend himself, we'll leave it at that. So we go over and uh, we start chatting with him and we made an instant friendship connection. He was his, uh, his wife and my wife have a lot in common. We're both, you know, family and faith before anything in our lives. Um, our kids were the same age. So we just met and became friends. And it was a couple years later that we wound up, you know, writing together. It was actually Brian's idea. I'll, I'll save that one for him to tell you. But um, yeah. we started writing together a couple years later. In terms of the process, that military thing is really the key. Um, you know, people who have served, whether not just the military, but people that have had a life of service that know what servant leadership really looks like, um, and that's a big thing in the in the military, especially in you know uh, elite units like or elite places like special warfare or the submarine community. Um, you have to be able to put the mission before yourself. You have to be able to put your team before yourself, and you have to understand that you're a cog, right? Like hmm. you can't, Brian can't just mount up on a $6 billion submarine and be a lethal fighting force. He's one part of this, you know, colony of people. Every one of them has to do their job perfectly for it to work. And in the special warfare community, the same thing. And so early on when we did agreed, we would write together. That's what we said. We said, you know what, let's take what we've learned as military officers and apply it to this. There'll be no ego. There's no your stuff, my stuff. Everything you write, I can change. Everything you write, I can change and vice versa. Um, and it's going to be about the product. It's going to be about writing the best book. It's ours. It's not yours or mine. And so that's 
how we approach it with a very, uh, you know, team before self attitude. And for us, it works. And every co-op, there's not a lot of them, but every co-authoring team has their own thing. That's ours. And I think it works for us because of that military connection. Well, I appreciate you letting us uh, have a peek behind the curtain in terms of all that, but let's talk about the new book. So thank you guys for sending me an advanced yeah. copy of this. It is called Dark Angel and it's out this week, guys, if you're listening to this on time. And it is the second book in the, what I thought was going to be a three book series of the Shepherd series, but now it's being expanded out to six, which is awesome for you guys. So how about you remind our listeners of what the Shepherd series is and then give them an idea of what they can expect with Dark Angel. Absolutely. In the broadest terms, um, the Shepherd series is what Andrews and Wilson does. It's covert ops and you know, bad guys and good guys and door kicking and a former Navy SEAL and all that. But what we did in this series was we were able to layer in other things that we're passionate about, uh, things like crisis and faith, our main character, a little different character and hero for his hero's journey, you usually get guys at the top of their game, right? Like John Dempsey and Chunk in our Sons of Valor series. These guys are badass doing their thing, top of the game. We meet Jed when he's broken physically emotionally, spiritually. This is a guy that encountered evil as a young man and ran from it. Like it's not a classic hero's journey. And so what we attempted to do was to take those entertaining, you know, uh, covert operations elements and blend in themes of crisis and faith. What does that look like? Jed is a guy who has run away from his faith when he had to confront evil and he hasn't found his way back to it. And some biblically based supernatural elements of spiritual warfare uh, we chose that because, you know, those of us that have been places and seen true evil, we want to be able to show that to people in a way that can be entertaining, but maybe informative, because I believe those things are real and are out there. And even in church, we don't talk about it much mm -hmm. for some reason. I think the church used to, but we don't now talk a lot about the good. We don't talk a lot about the evil side and we don't talk mm -hmm. a lot about what that looks like. So we tried to put those elements in, uh, which makes it, well, first of all, as a writer, creatively, like right there, the sky's the limit. Right. Um, but I think also just as a reader and as someone involved in military ministry, it's an opportunity to share some of these themes and maybe at the end, someone reads the book and has something they want to think about or talk about. Well, I think that's, just, that's an important thing because that's one thing that's missing from this genre in general is that extra element. Cause you usually have, there's the revenge element and you've got the, you know, fighting for my teammates element, but having that faith element is very interesting. However, and I'm sure you've heard this pushback a lot from a lot of people. It's also a violent series. And so some people will find that odd, especially people that are in the church. Like I, I posted a meme the other day on our Instagram and someone says, isn't this a Christian page? Because it was, because it was funny. It was a satire thing. I reposted something from the Babylon Bee, but everyone loves to moralize and clutch their pearls when something kind of offends their sensibilities. But there are a lot of people that would, would say to you guys, or at least think that it's inappropriate to, to have a series that's violent, that also has these elements. So talk to me a little bit about yeah. that pushback you may get. It, it is it is funny. First of all, I'm happy to report we've had less of that than we thought. We've had a little, okay, uh, but less than we thought. And part of that we credit to um, Tyndale House specifically, but Christian fiction in general is sort of in this evolution phase. You know, 10 years ago, if you said, describe the cover of the newest Christian book, you'd say, okay, it's a girl sitting on the back of a wagon with a bonnet on. And like, that's, that's what it was. Amish right. romance. That was Christian fiction. And that's what you could get. I think that what, uh, the Christian culture, if you will, the church, and I mean that in the acts two way, the broadest sense, the church, the community of believers is coming to realize is that, yeah, you know, we're not supposed to be of the world, but we are in it. And we can't talk about difficult things if we're not willing 
to describe the, the world that we live in. And so even just a few years ago, I wrote an inspirational um, fiction book about war called War Torn. And I couldn't publish it with a Christian uh, Christian publisher because they said, oh, we love the themes and redemption and finding your way back. But there's so much violence. Can you edit some of that out? I was like, well, then what's he struggling with? If you exactly. and, so, and so I think you're exactly right. There's this there's this sense that you that the church or the publishing industry, they're going to be very maternal. Right. They'll let us know what is OK for us to read. The reality is. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. Did you see the last Bourne movie? Did you watch the last Mission Impossible movie? Of course you did. It's exciting and it's entertaining. So if you're going to be doing that anyway, why not come up with some stuff that's exciting and entertaining and action packed and realistic and gritty that can also expose you to these themes of crisis and faith and who is God? What is good and evil? What's the the role in the world? Um, Redemption, these things. So I think that you're seeing an evolution in Christian fiction led by companies like Tyndale House to do stuff that's a little a little grittier, a little more violent. Um, but I can't show you a story about a guy who recovers from his trauma if I'm not allowed to have you have an emotional response to what his trauma was. Absolutely. And the thing with Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And you can't push back darkness if you don't look at it, if you don't recognize it, if you don't see it. And there's a lot of men around the globe that are doing things in areas that uh, we, we don't even know about, but, you know, pushing back against, you know, human trafficking or pushing back against darkness in other ways around the world. You can't do that by just covering your eyes and pretending like it doesn't exist, which I guess gets me into the next topic I wanted to talk about, because we didn't get to talk about this very well, much in, you in your do, other- I just want to say one yeah. other thing on this, if you don't mind. I know you're- Go you got a time thing, but um, these people that say, I'm not going to read Dark Intercept because of the violence, they must not read the Bible because there yeah. is violence. And I'm not just talking about the Old Testament violence and the wars and this tribe and that tribe throughout the New Testament. I mean, did you have an emotional, visceral response when you read about the stoning of Stephen? That was an important story, but would it have been important if they didn't talk about the violent part of it? You had to have this horrified, visceral, emotional response to Stephen being stoned to death in order to be moved by him looking to heaven and saying, God, your will, and and here I come. I, I put myself in your hands. You can't have one without the other. So these people that are uncomfortable reading about violent themes in a Christian book I don't know how they get through the Bible. They must really sterilize the Bible in order to get through it. I really wrote, I literally wrote down there, they're sanitizing violence to a degree because what Jesus did when he cleared the temple was a violent act of yes. righteous aggression, okay? So he didn't walk through and like, oh, I'm just going to toss this table and toss this table like it's been depicted in some, you know, Christian media and things like that. Like he was almost reluctantly doing it. No, 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 no. He saw what was going on. He left, made a whip, came back. Yeah. Right? Like this, this was premeditated aggression. So it's like, is that, what is that if it's not violence? And so what I wanted to, to get into, and this kind of dovetails with all the, you know, talking about manhood and masculinity, but obviously I think the state of manhood is paltry in the United States, the state of masculinity, even traditional masculinity is being branded as toxic and you're not allowed to do certain things or, or say certain things because that's just not acceptable in modern lexicon or modern parlance or whatever. But from your perspective, 
what do you think the state of manhood and masculinity is in our culture? And we, we can talk about that specifically in the church because I talk about that a lot, about a lot of the super effeminized men inside the church that are being further effeminized by their effeminate pastors. You know, the lack of rites of passage to usher young men into manhood. Take it wherever you want to go with it. Yeah. I, so first of all, let me start by saying another area where we're in 100% agreement. Okay. I think yeah. that... Um, stealing from our sons, like you and I are where we are and we're probably not going to be swayed or moved. I'm, we're not going to suddenly become feminized because of the cultural change. I worry more about the next generation. I sure. worry about yeah. my sons. I worry about, you know, uh, the people, the half generation in between us, the, you know, the 25 year olds and the effect that'll have. And once that effect happens, like you're alluding to what happens to the church? What happens to the community? What happens to the nation? What happens to the world uh, if we if we emasculate men from manly things? I'm very blessed that I go to a church where that's not an issue. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a man camp every year and uh, men go out in the woods and do stupid things that men do and uh, talk about God and have praise and worship and that sort of thing. Uh, we have a very robust uh, ministry at our at Grace Family Church called Courageous uh, that is for men. Uh, and the bottom line is, it's not a rights issue. Men and women are different. You can talk until you're blue in the face about equality, but equality has to begin with understanding who you are. And men are different. God made us that way. And to try to make men not pursue their natural course of what God created them to be so that another group will maybe feel more comfortable is is a form of is a form of madness. So um, I I agree that uh, you do see a uh, a feminizing of of manhood in America, and it's and it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for the individual, but it's also not a good thing for the church, for culture, or society at large. Like. There's, there's been something that I've been thinking about here recently, and I'll, I'll probably, you know, flesh it out in a future podcast, but under everything in society is the threat of violence. So if you get pulled over by a police officer and you refuse to do the things that he asks you to do, violence is how that situation gets solved. If you tell a country, you're not going to do this to your people, you're not going to cross our borders, you're not going to do these things. If you don't have violence as the deterrent, that's not a real deterrent, like sanctions and, oh, we're going to shame you on the world stage. So what? Like you, you have to show a show of force. And so when you feminize the men in your culture, at some point, the, the wolf's going to come knocking. And if you look around and you don't see sheepdogs, that's what I talk about with pastors. If you look around and you need sheepdogs and you don't see any, that's not their fault uh, completely. That's your fault. So I'm glad you go to a church that doesn't really go there. And, and one, one other quick thing before we kind of get towards the end and wrap up. One of the things that I feel about with men that they're doing to themselves. So, you know, culture's doing their thing to try to feminize them. Men are not exercising their minds very much. They're not reading. Obviously, uh, Tyndale House can tell you that. They they know the, the numbers about men, especially Christian men, and how they don't read. Talk to me a little bit about that because last year I read, you know, 40-something books, which was an extremely, you know, prolific year for me personally doing reading. But I talked to so many guys that read somewhere between zero and one books a year every single year. What is it with men? Why do they see reading as this chore that you stop doing when you graduate high school? Yeah, I don't. I don't know the answer to the why, but I, you're absolutely right um, that it's a that it's a real thing. Um, you know, it's the joke in our industry is you know how do you get a, a women go out and find books? Right. Men will maybe read the book if you hold it in their face and say, "I want you to read this book." <laughs> do it. Do it now. Exactly. Uh, and so there's even a marketing strategy for you know male oriented books in the Christian market that it's like we need to market you know the Shepherd series 
to women so that they'll get their husbands to read it because they're oh. they're not going to go and, and discover it. I don't know why that is, but it's for sure a real thing. I will say that there's maybe a little culpability in society, especially in Christian fiction, for the reasons that we just talked about. Hmm. Look, if you're going to tell a guy, look, you should read more. And he says, well, I want to do something that's comfortable for my faith. And he goes to a Christian bookstore and all he sees is Amish romance. <laughs> he's probably not going to become a big reader. Like that's the right. bottom line. And so, you know, the whole, one of the whole purposes that Tyndale house had in, in bringing us in to write this series is to address the need for books that will entertain in that market of male readers, you know? So I'm not saying that's the reason we can't blame it on publishing and say, Oh yeah, if only there were better books, cause there's certainly plenty out there. Uh, but that's a real thing, at least in the Christian market that it's being addressed. So well, I have an idea for the the back half of the Shepherd series. How about Jedediah go to Pennsylvania to an Amish community <laughs> and it, like there's like this negative this underbelly of Amish community that's like the the Amish mafia. Maybe maybe there's something there. Maybe they fall in love with a, a Irish or Irish Amish woman in a bonnet. I'm just saying it could be something that you could do. You can kind of weave these we worlds can weave together. The genres together. Man, we'll sell a million books. <laughs> that's a that's a free idea. I won't even take a commission. But hey, since you've been on the show before, you know how I like to end it. I do a little series here at the end called What Would You Say to Someone That Said? Now last time that we did this. I gave some to you and then gave some to your partner, but now it's just you. We're going to do a truncated version of this. So I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said, I'm going to fill in the blank. You've got 30 seconds maximum to answer these questions. This is lightning round. So you up for it? Let's do it. All right. First one, what would you say to someone that said the easiest way to deter the United States' enemies is to be strong and intimidating on the world stage? I agree. (laughs) That's what I would say to them. That's a pretty easy one, right? I, I yeah. just, I served you up that one. Super yeah, I feel like, I feel like that was the sandwich. That, yeah, that was the gift. It's like a little appetizer. Okay. You know, you got to kind of ease your way into these, but let's get a little bit harder. Let's go to the next one. What would you say to someone that said, I just don't have time to read? Anyone that says they don't have time to read is a liar. Now you can see, if you say to me, you don't want to read, fine. If you, if you make reading a priority, you make it, you know, I don't have time to do my Bible study, but I do it every morning. So yeah, that's, I would say you're a liar. That's not true. That's one of the reasons why I tell guys to e-read is because this is always with me. So if I'm getting my oil change or if I'm waiting to pick up my sons from school or something like that, I've got my book right here. It's not like, oh, I left it on my, on my dining room table or something and, like and that. And I will say you, the, the excuses don't even exist anymore because anyone that says, you know, the opportunity to just sit down and open a book. Okay, fine. I'm going to, I think it's not true, but I'm going to give it to you. So here's your solution. Audiobooks. You're driving to work, you're driving back and forth, you're picking up the kids. We sell 30% of our sales right now are audible. Um, Wow. That's a real growth. And we're blessed to have the most amazing narrators. We have, you know, McLeod Andrews for this series. We have uh, Ray Porter. Uh, Those books come to life. So that maybe I'll change my answer to, okay, get an audio book. Hey, that's the thing too. Like Ray Porter, he does the Jack Carr novels and, and all the things like that. Like guys, like th- this is how you can get this content into your brain, but I'm busting up my own show here. This is lightning round. Let's it's go to the next round. one. What would you say to someone that said the United States time as the dominant force in the world will soon be at an end? I would say that will only be true if we let it be. That's our decision. America can decide to be weak or we can decide to be strong. We can decide to lead or we can decide to follow. And it's a decision we should make as a people. Uh, not one or few, one or two individuals. Absolutely. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, why would I read when I can just watch television? <laughs> well, see, now you put me in an awkward situation because we're, 
we've got like a half a dozen t- TV and movie projects in development. What do I want them to do? I want them to read yeah. the book first. Um, there you yeah, go. I, I think that I think that goes back to the first answer. That's lame. You can not tell a story in two hours like you can tell in a in a hundred thousand word book. You got to be able to get in the minds of people. It'll bring a layer that you don't appreciate if you'll do it. All right, just a couple more left here. What would you say to someone that said the United States military should be more concerned with diversity and inclusion than lethality? You're wrong. We'll leave that one there because I agree. Last question of the day, we've made it. What would you say to someone that said, it's hard for me to wrap my head around Christians writing such dark and violent books? Uh, We are Christian men who write about the world we live in and the hope to inspire others to deal with those difficult, dark things. Guys, again, you can't push back against darkness if you don't recognize its existence, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Nothing other than, man, thank you so much for having me. I always I always feel lifted up when I talk to you, man. It's awesome. It's awesome. That is a, that's a great compliment. I will say this, though. Could y'all slow down on releasing the books? I've got a busy schedule. You know, and y'all keep, every time y'all write a book, I want to have you on. Can you just slow down just a little bit? Well, how, maybe every other. You know, we're doing four books a year. It, maybe you just have us on every other. Okay. I'll, I'll have you on every other book. We can make this a regular thing, but Jeff Wilson, thank you for coming back on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks for having me, brother. And I hope we can get you to Tampa to speak to the men here. Let's get it. All right. Brian Andrews, welcome back to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. I am so happy to be here. And, uh, I'm happy that uh, we're doing it on a Friday, right? So it's got TGIF vibe going and uh, heading into the weekend. It's sunny outside. I got great weather in Kansas City today. So, uh, yeah. Perfect day. Well, there's always great weather in Kansas City. And if it's windy, you can smell barbecue just kind of misting through the air right into your nostrils. So that's a good thing. Just got done talking to Jeff. Terrible interview. Like I told you off Mm -hmm. here, I don't know what it is with that guy. I asked him these straight questions and he just can't give me a good answer. But, you know, obviously I'm kidding. We love Jeff around here. At least he's consistently bad though, right? He's got that going for him. Right. I mean, that's the thing is the worst thing you could possibly be is good sometimes and terrible other times. If you're going to be something, just be that thing no matter what. But And the only reason we're saying that is because Jeff isn't here. He's not in the same room, so he can't punch us in the nose. But we're going to get into a lot of subject matters. He gave us some great updates on, you know, the expansion of y'all's materials. You know, y'all are getting into other forms of media. So maybe that'll come out throughout this interview. But like I told you off air, I'm going to be asking you a lot of the same questions. So my audience will be able to compare which one of you is smarter, more handsome, more articulate, all the things. So no pressure. Pressure, but you know, Jeff did actually set a pretty good standard with the last interview. So I hope you, I hope you're up for it. I'm bringing my A game, and maybe what we do is we have a a, a user like um, poll. There the we go. Okay, yeah. I like that. Maybe we can do a poll and see which one of you guys is the better of Andrews and Wilson. You know what I what I told him was like I'm trying to drive a wedge between you guys so that y'all leave, write your own books, and then come back and we could do a reunion tour, <laughs> and I can you know I can speak at it and maybe play the kazoo. I think we got some options here. I think the kazoo, you had me at kazoo. Let's just, okay. let's just say that. Perfect. So let, let's come out of the world of ridiculous for a second because the last time we had you guys on the show, or actually it was the first time we had you on your show, this is your third appearance. We, we I kind of got y'all's immediate reactions to what was happening in Afghanistan because the week that I talked to you guys was the week that the United States pulled out of Afghanistan, right. created that power vacuum. You know, we lost, uh, you know, over a dozen service members in that bombing. You know, just an absolute, uh, you know what show. But here we are, you know, nine months removed or whatever, you know, later on this summer will be one year since we've left. I'm just curious what your opinions are now and if they've shifted at all in terms of what, what did we do? Like, what did we cause? What type of pain did we cause? How our veterans are feeling about the situation, how the world feels about our status in the world. So give me some more thoughts on what, what went on in Afghanistan and how you feel about it now. 
Well, I mean, what a kinetic world we live in, right? I mean, that during that last interview, that was that was the big news, and look what's happening right now with uh, right. Ukraine, right? So, I mean, I think we have a pretty good. I, I'm not trying to in any way downplay uh, the problems with our withdrawal and and the tragedy of how certain elements of that were handled, or just you know the the Afghanistan um, endeavor in general. But if you look at um, sort of how we managed Afghanistan start to finish, our objectives and, and the things we accomplished, and you compare to, you know, the absolute humanitarian crisis and horror show that is happening in Ukraine. Um, I mean, I think that maybe the world looks at our standing uh, through a different lens than they did, you know, one year ago. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And the, the concern that I have is China's watching this, you know, yeah. Russia is obviously watching this. So if you're China, why wouldn't you go for Taiwan? Why wouldn't you push into other areas? I know India is watching this. Pakistan is watching this. There, Iran. There are a lot of people that either don't like us outright or don't like us behind behind the scenes. And they're watching how we respond. And I mean, let, let's talk even a little bit more about the situation in Ukraine. It's the same group of people in government that made the decisions to do what they did in Afghanistan that are making decisions about what to do in Ukraine, which should give us all pause, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that um, you have a situation now where for the first time in a long time, uh, the entire global community, it, and and we're not talking, I'm not talking about governments, I'm talking about people. Right. People have uh, made their voices heard. They're voting with their dollars and they're voting with, their time and their commitment. We have people going over there helping out in this effort. Now, you've got a cyber army that Ukraine has put together through social media, recruiting people from all over the world to help with that. You have donations flooding in through uh, nonprofits, but also people using instruments like uh, Airbnb to mm -hmm. rent properties that have been bombed and destroyed simply as ways to donate money to families uh, that are in crisis over there. And then, of course, you have uh, all the veterans who are volunteering either to provide uh, training or some of them are actually getting into the fight. So that's very encouraging. I, you know, I actually feel like, uh, and maybe I'm in the minority, but I feel like the current administration has done a pretty good job managing this very volatile, very unpredictable dangerous dictator that we have in Vladimir Putin. You know, in 2014 with Crimea, I was disappointed uh, the way that we just sort of like, every, everyone just sort of ignored what happened there. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, uh, you know, naughty. Let's slap, uh, you know, Putin, a little slap on the wrist, but he got away with it. This time, I mean, from the very beginning, we ratcheted up financial sanctions to the point where, you know, I think that we could be knocking Russia back into uh, pre, you know, uh, 1990 type of economy. It's that there's some talk about that. And also, I mean, I think we've done a good job of getting uh, weapons and support and training into the Ukrainian army. The risk here of trying to intervene in a non-NATO nation, especially one that uh, is so near and dear to uh you know, somebody who's mentally a little bit unstable. I think Putin has shown, you know, he's not rational when it comes to certain decisions. I mean, the last thing we want is a nuclear conflagration, you know, from this, this conflict. So I think we've walked him to the edge 
And I think, you know, the administration has not done anything to discourage uh, the type of um, veteran activities and public support for Ukraine to the optimal extent. So we'll see. I mean, time, I don't want to be an armchair. I mean, everybody likes to be an armchair quarterback, but, you know, at least right now, we haven't gotten into World War III. Well, and for the most part, um, I've listened to hours and hours of podcasts about the history of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia and that area of the, of the, of the globe. And I still don't know exactly what's going on. And it's hard to tell what we're getting from whatever news source, whether it's propaganda or whether it's real. Yeah. You know, yeah, the, the ghost of Kiev, uh, you know, and they're like, oh, there's this jet. But then it was like, uh, it was filmed from like a video game of this jet flying through Kiev yeah. and all that. And so it's like, it's really, really hard to keep everything. But I will say, if if the world doesn't know what the deterrent is, like just recently, Joe Biden was asked about, you know, what would be the deterrent? Because he went back on something he said where he said, yeah, these sanctions will be a deterrent. And then someone asked him about it and he's like, no, 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 we never said it would be a deterrent from future action. The problem is, is if you keep it a secret, what the consequences are of if you cross this red line, but then it goes back to Obama and Syria, don't cross this red line. Definitely don't cross this red line. You know, shame on you if you do. And then they cross it and then we do nothing. Again, everyone pays attention to that and the, the volatility. And again, this is not a, a podcast about Ukraine. Again, like I said, we could spend the next three hours talking about it and sure. still not be any wiser about it. But I, that does kind of dovetail into something I want to get into before we get into the new book. And that's just the overall state of the United States military. Because as I was talking about with Jeff, as a civilian, I look at the United States military and it seems like they're very, very concerned about diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're very concerned. I had a guy from the Air Force send me an email that was someone that he was training him about how to put his pronouns in his bio uh, of his email, right? In his yeah. email signature and all that. And it seems like we're worried about things that have nothing to do with lethality, have nothing to do with, you know, being powerful or killing the enemy or something like that. So from your perspective, having, you know, served in the military, you're a veteran, you still do a lot for veterans causes. What does it feel like for a lot of those guys? Do they feel that kind of pressure? Is this all just, you know, propaganda from right wing Twitter? Like this stuff isn't actually happening. Kind of give me an idea from where you sit. Yeah. I mean, I'm fairly far removed from active duty at this point, I would say, but I mean, I guess my take would be, I feel like, um, and Jeff and I talk about this a lot. I do feel like the loudest voices right now are the people that are concerned about the least important things. <laughs> so um, like maybe there is something going on with, you know, that sort of training or that sort of thing. But I, I would I would I would conjecture that, you know, in your average unit, um, you know, that's that's one hour of training a year that maybe is mandatory or whatever. And people do what hear it, do what they need to do, do what they think is right, and then they move on to being professionals and doing their job. I mean, what I think was great about our military is that we do have a diverse military, just like our country. You know, we have a country that's full of people from all different nationalities and backgrounds. We're a country that was founded based on immigrants, but we also have, you know, uh, a military where we have both men and women serving, and we're all working together. And so I think it's that, you know, the fact that we do work together. And the fact that we do have a really strong and functional military, yeah, we have our hiccups, there's disagreements, there's racism, there's these elements. But I think most of the people, the vast majority of our of our servicemen and women, they're locked on, they're doing their job. And I think if you, again, don't want to just go back to Ukraine, but we've been surprised at how ineffective the Russian military has been. Right. We've been surprised that they haven't been able to 
execute their mission, the losses that they've taken, the lack of cohesion, the lack of strategy. And you compare and contrast that. We're, we're pretty harsh critics on ourselves, right? I think you look at our losses in Afghanistan over 20 years, and suddenly, you know, benchmarking Russia against the United States or benchmarking us against them, you would say, wow, you know what? We did a lot better job than maybe some people gave, gave us credit for, or even maybe we give ourselves credit for. So that's been an interesting takeaway for me recently. Yeah, all the all the diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff. I always thought that, you know, none of that woke stuff would enter, you know, corporate America or enter the military. And here we are in the last few years, and that's exactly what it's done. Because I don't care if we found out that five foot seven men of Latino descent that are 165 pounds, that's the perfect soldier. And if the entire military looked like that, I don't care as long as we're lethal. Because again, I didn't sign up to defend this country. And to put my life on the line to defend people uh, that say these crazy things. And so, again, for us, I think we're focusing on some of the wrong things, which maybe people would say that about the beginning of this interview because we're supposed to be talking about the new book. So let's talk about the <laughs> new book. And so uh, we'll get into Dark Angel here in just a second. But, you know, Jeff kind of gave everybody a little bit of an idea, but I would love to hear from your perspective as well. Because if you didn't listen to your first interviews, you kind of went into this. But for those in the audience that have not listened to your previous appearances on this show, how did you get hooked up uh, with Jeff, and you know, how did that co-writing process begin, and then how does it continue? Because that is not a very common thing to see two last names, you know, on yeah. on a book of uh, people that work together. So tell me about that whole thing about how you guys got together. Yeah, and, and I think the other cool thing too is our longevity, right? So right. we ended up meeting, I think, 2013. So it's been almost a decade since we met. We met at a writers conference in New York called the International Thriller Writers, and this is a really fantastic organization, very collegial, very fraternal in the sense of, hey, you know what? We're all thriller writers. We're all different stages of our careers, but you know what? We all could use uh, some help, whether it's networking, whether it's uh, understanding how marketing and promotion, whether it's understanding certain elements of the craft of writing, getting an agent, finding an editor. What is it like to work for this publisher? What is it like to work for that publisher? These are questions that you can't really go online and research, right? These are the types of things that you really need to be around people who've been there, done that, and are willing to share their experience. And, you know, when I started my writing career, I realized very quickly, hey, I can't just buy the uh, how to get your book published book off of Amazon, read this thing and think that it's going to happen. I tried right. that and I realized it's, uh, you know, the strategy is lacking. I need to get into the thick of things, ask people who've been there, who've been successful for help. And uh, that's what I did. And, uh, and, and I joined the debut authors uh, program at ITW. Jeff happened, coincidentally, to sort of reach the same conclusion. He joined the same program. So the same year, we're debut authors. And we met in that debut author, author class. And uh, being two military guys, you know, with families, and same life sort of goals and experiences, we became fast friends. And it wasn't until a couple years later, I mean, we kept attending that conference, but a couple years later, you know, he had, I think he had published his third book and I had published my second individually. And I hadn't started anything else. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And uh, just sort of almost just as a, as a, like a brainstorm, I was like, dude, it would be kind of fun with, you did special warfare, I did submarines. What if we did like a, seals and subs type of book and we worked on it together 
He's like, you talking about like co-authoring something? I said, yeah. He's like, I don't know how that would work. He's like, how would that even work? He's like, cause I, you know, I write by myself, you know, it's like a very solitary endeavor. So how do you do that with somebody else? I was like, well, I mean, I don't know. Let's, let's play around with it. Maybe we could divide it up by chapter. Maybe we divide it up by point of view or, or something like that. And so we just said, well, let's brainstorm something out. We'll write five chapters, see if it's working. If it's not working, you know, I said, take it. You can take the book and run. If it is, let's try to finish it. Turns out, you know, that sort of military approach of, hey, you know what? It's easier to lift this 800 pound log <laughs> over your head when you've got a bunch of other people helping you than trying to do it by yourself. Guess what? That actually applies to business and applies to writing too. So even something as solitary as being a storyteller, being a novelist, um, there are benefits to uh, teaming up because turns out you're maybe not, maybe you don't know everything and maybe every element of storytelling, you've got some strengths, you've got some weaknesses and that's what we found. So our particular blending of talents and experience was very beneficial for us. We felt that synergy right away. Well, beneficial for you guys and also beneficial for the audience because you're getting two different perspectives. And I mean, even like a really detailed reader is not going to know, oh, well, this, this section is clearly from Brian or this section is clearly from Jeff. You kind of weave it together in a really, really nice way, which leads us to the second book in the Shepherd series. So this is Dark Angel. So guys, if you're listening to this, it is out now. You can get it in the show notes and pick up a copy of that, but let's go ahead and talk about it. So yeah. this is the second book of what was supposed to be three books, but that has been now expanded. <laughs> you're actually going to be doing six books uh, in the Shepherd series. So how about you remind our listeners what the Shepherd series is and then give us an idea from your perspective about what they can expect in Dark Angel. Yeah, the Shepherd series is where we took what I would say our core brand, which is covert operations, espionage type thrillers. And we decided to add an additional element of um, spiritual warfare and sort of what is the unseen hand? You know, I think all of us who have served or even in your daily lives, sometimes you feel like there's that unseen hand, sort of something operating behind the curtain um, that's just out of view. You can feel it, you can sense it, you can sometimes see the outcome of it, but when you go to look at it, it's not there. And you know, we've all had that little voice in our head that maybe says, you know, I wouldn't do that, or turn right instead of left, or maybe not get on this plane, you know, maybe not go to the grocery store at this time, or something like that, you know. Is it paranoia or is there maybe something just one step beyond going on? And we thought, you know, that could be very interesting to incorporate that into a special warfare type of mentality. If you talk to operators, a lot of times you'll hear stories. I mean, uh, one of the, the sub-characters in the book, you know, we, we gave a, a guy named Eddie a cameo and one of his experiences was very much like that. You know, he, he heard and saw signs that, you know what? my team is in the wrong position. I need to relocate. He didn't have any intelligence coming in his ear telling him he needed to do that. It was just his perception of the situation. He relocated his team and then that building blew up 30 seconds later. You know, so these are the types of stories. These are the types of things we thought they don't show up in traditional thrillers. Mm. Let's put them in there. Let's see if we can incorporate spirituality and ask questions about God and good and evil and crisis in faith. And these are the types of questions that people ask themselves in real life, but they don't show up when Mitch Rapp is, you know, uh, going in for the kill, right? 
but they do show up, you know, later when you're back after when you're home from the mission, you're sitting around with the guys and you're trying to deal with the loss and, and, and the killing and, and the stress and anxiety of the choices that you've made. You, you ask those self, yourself those hard questions. So we put them in the book. Yeah, it's certainly a unique element for this genre. So that faith element in the series is a really cool thing, especially for guys that don't really like to read. Christian guys that, that don't like to read, they go to a Christian bookstore and they don't see anything that really fits who they are. You know, they're maybe rough around the edges or maybe they're retired military, they're veterans, and they don't they don't really see something that really speaks to them. But that's the thing about this series is there's the faith element, but it's also a violent series. And so some people, uh, especially, you know, maybe church folk would find that to be odd, you know, at the least, and maybe even inappropriate. And so I know y'all have gotten some pushback to the, the violence in the series and kind of the darkness of the series. So how do you guys deal with that? Or what, what are your overall thoughts on that pushback? Mm, I think that's a great question. And I think it's maybe a starting point for a dialogue too. And I'd be, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it uh, after I give my answer too, yeah. which is that, you know, I think if we could solve every problem with just, um, understanding, compassion, and love, uh, we would, we yeah. would. And, um, I wish that we could, but we can't, right? Because there's certain, um, you know, there's certain, uh, situations, you know, when, when you have uh, a terrorist staring down at you with a machine gun, um, you're not going to be able to give them a hug and, and talk them out of it, right? So sometimes we have to stand hard against evil. And that's I think that's sort of the, 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 the point that we're making here, right? Sometimes you have to stand up for yourself. Sometimes you have to punch back so that you don't get uh, taken down. Well, I think to that, you know, as you know, our mission here at Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness. And I said this to Jeff, you can't push back darkness if you don't recognize it, if you don't see it. But also there's always this underlying threat of violence. Okay. So whether, uh, you know, you're either farming out violence to someone else like police or the military, or you're performing it yourself. But when you tell someone to do something, and they don't do it. There's always this underlying threat of violence that really comes from the man. And the thing about it is, is it would be nice and it would be awesome if we could solve all these issues without violence. And, you know, you look at, you know, stories from the Bible, you look at Jesus doing the violent act of clearing out the temple, right? Like putting it, putting his hands on people and animals and clearing them out. That was premeditated righteous aggression. We have so much unrighteous aggression in, in the world today that we just lump all aggression into the same category. But again, if you're going to deal with real darkness and real issues, you, you don't deal with it by throwing doilies at it you know, sprinkling, you know, potpourri all over it. Sometimes you have to push back in a very violent way. And a lot of our guys that have been downrange, they've seen that. They've seen evil that we can't even fathom, even in great novels, right? And so that that's kind of where I would would come from. It does does any of that strike you as odd or, or really, you know, off my rocker? No. So I think that you've you've hit the key issue. So here's what we need to always keep in mind. We cannot turn to evil to save us from evil. Right. You see a lot of that happening. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. OK. Uh, we're scared. So we're going to preemptively do something bad so that something bad might not happen to us. Sure. That's wrong. It's also wrong, I think, to be cowardly and let, you know, someone who is immoral, you know, hurt your family or hurt your country and sit back and hope that doesn't happen, right? 
So this is a gray area and there is no right answer. There are people out there who will take premeditated uh, action that is unjust. And there are people who will not take premeditated action that is unjust, right? So it's just, I think this is the trickiest thing. And I think maybe this is an area where the, the U.S. Uh, military has actually done a, a pretty good job over the decades, you know, which is um, and why we're called the world's policemen, because we think about this question. We think about it a lot. And it's up and down throughout the uh, chain of command as well, which is, you know, when do we intervene and how do we intervene and how do we keep, you know, our troops safe and how do we minimize collateral damage so that we're not, you know, we're not going in and bombing baby hospitals like the Russians are in Mariupol, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Have we made mistakes? Have we had collateral damage? Yes. But it's always top of mind, right? Mm -hmm. It's always top of mind. So... As long as you're aware of, hey, I'm not going to be a perpetuator of evil when I'm trying to stop evil. What I'm trying to do is stop evil and do it in the most just and righteous way possible. And that's sort of where the shepherds organization comes from. You know, they're not pushovers, Mm -hmm. but they're not out there just killing wantedly either. Right. And so that's what's kind of cool about this series is that, um, they're a faith-based organization. They believe in, in goodness. They believe in justice. Uh, and they also believe that, you know what, we can't just ignore evil and let it run rampant. Yeah, I think you're making a really great point. I forget who brought it up first, but you know how the Russians are just basically trying to carpet bomb areas. In America, we're trying to put a missile through a window. Yeah. Like that, that's the difference. And you talk about uh, Israel, they will warn people in buildings that they're about to bomb it. They will send messages to these people. They will send soldiers into that building to make sure the, the, you know, certain people are cleared out before they bomb this particular area, essentially giving away their, their operations plans to the enemy. So the enemies are, are taking, uh, you know, their contraband or taking their weapons out of there and moving along, but they would rather do that than to blow up a building, kill, you know, three enemies, but then kill three dozen families, right? Like that's this kind of the difference. So when we look out, you know, that's one thing now is we can't moralize. We can't say your truth is right. And your truth is, is, is wrong. Like there's, there's no standard of absolute truth and there's no standard of absolute morality supposedly, but you can't look at the, the situations and how we handle ourselves and say that we're all the same to say that we're just like Russia or just like Iran or we're just like whoever any of one of our, our, you know, enemies would be. But I do want to transition a little bit out of kind of the the world of writing and into the uh, the world of manhood and masculinity, because one kind of through point to all this, Brian, is that there's an attack on masculinity and there's obviously a lot of things that are traditional masculine things or just traditional masculinity are being called toxic outright. They're just being saying that this is a toxic thing that is happening. So from your perspective, obviously being a veteran, being a writer, you know, hanging around with guys, uh, you know, guys are subject matters of your books and things like that. What would you say the state of manhood and masculinity is in our culture right now? And you could take that to manhood in the church. You could take that into our lack of rites of passages that kind of welcome young men into manhood. Just take it wherever you want to go. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a hard question to answer just, you know, I can't just answer the question, but we can, we can certainly dialogue about it. Right. And I think mm-hmm. as a father, I have three daughters. So as a father of three daughters, I feel like my job is to prepare my daughters for what it's going to be like out there in the real world. 
And I want to be that representation of masculinity that's, you know, as close as I can, what, what my opinion of being a good dad and a strong father is, you know, I try to embody those elements, mm -hmm. which is, you know, teach my daughters that, you know, you need to be smart. You need to use your head, right? You can't trust that everybody, just because they tell you something, that it's the truth. Recognize situations that might be dangerous and how to take care of themselves and stuff. Because I want to be that protector. I want to be there, uh, you know, to save the day and shield them and take the punch or, you know, exfil them out of a dangerous situation. But I'm not going to be there for that all the time. So I think, you know, part of this idea, I think, of, of manhood is finding the courage and the strength to um, be the example that you need to be to both your sons and your daughters, but also, you know, prepare our young people for the challenges that are in the world. I think a lot of us have become maybe too emotionally fragile. Um, and, you know, I don't, did I tell you the story um, of the new recruit with the poke, poke, poke story? Did I tell no, you that? I don't story? believe so. Go for it. Do you mind if I share that story now? Yeah, let's get it. Okay. So when I was on um, my first submarine, it was sort of near the end of my, my tour there. You know, so I was fairly senior and I was doing a tour. The ship was in port. I was doing a tour of the ship. And um, one of the, uh, the engineering duty petty officer that day, he brought a new guy. He was taking a new guy around. And he was showing him everything. And he, he said, hey, um, Lieutenant, I'd like to introduce you to Petty Officer so-and-so. You know, he's a new M Division guy. And I said, oh, this is great. So I, I met him and he's talking to He's You know, we're having this conversation. But this senior enlisted guy, he while he's talking, he, he's poking this new guy in the shoulder, you know, with his finger pretty hard. Poke. And he'd mm -hmm. say that. He'd say, poke, poke, you know, while we were talking. And it was very uncomfortable for the new guy, right? He's like looking at it. At first, he kind of laughs like, ha, 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 Yeah. And, you know, and then he's like, and then I see the look on his face like, what's going on here? And then the senior guy says to him, he's like, um, do you like this poke? And the guy's like, no. He's like, what are you going to do about it? Poke. And he's like, I don't know. He's like, you going to cry? Poke. You going to quit? Poke, poke, what are you gonna do about it? He's like, ask you to stop? He's like, poke, well, here's the deal. This is what it's like here every day, poke. So you better get used to it, because this is life. And for me, that was like a real paradigm type moment, mm. because that is what life is. Every day, there's something poking you, right? It could be professionally, it could be in your family, it could be that you, your car had a flat tire on the way to work. Life is a series of pokes and you have a choice. You can either cry about them and complain or you can quit and you can give up or you can man up and you can take them and you can figure out how to deal with them. And that was the lesson that the senior guy was trying to teach him is that life on a submarine is really hard. And there's going to be days where you want to quit and times that you want to cry and people that are not being treating you even, hmm. pro, even professionally, right? But you have to find strategies to deal with those things. 
And those strategies have to do with, you know, time management, confidence, your communication skills. And sometimes it's just standing up for yourself, you know, in a situation where you're being tested. So those are sort of elements of masculinity, I think, that, you know, maybe don't get discussed, but all we need to think about and we need to teach our young people. Yeah, preparing them to be able to, because you only have so much time on this planet to make your impact. So whether you lead this really small private life or you you know lead this big life where a bunch of people are looking to you as an influencer or something like that, you only get to make an impact while you're here. Unless yeah. you leave wisdom filled lessons for the people that come after you. So for me, I have two sons now. And so it's like, okay, the, the idea of them growing up, not knowing exactly what a man is and what's expected of them is, is astonishing to me. And the same thing for you with daughters, I'm sure you want to show them, this is how a man should love you. Watch how I love your mom or watch how I love my sister or, you know, their aunt or, or my mom or whatever the situation is, because you want them to look for those elements because a lot of these, you know, issues with girls acting out in sexual ways or in rebellious ways is because their dad is a dope their dad's you know yeah. buried in his fantasy football draft you know statistics or he's or he's gone or he he, he is verbally uh, abusive to mom or physically abusive to mom and then these women they go and perpetuate the cycle by doing the exact same things themselves and so that's one thing that for a lot of us yes there are the things that you do that only affect you directly but then there's the things that you do that everyone else is watching and if your children are watching those are going to be the ones that are going to be perpetuating who you are and what your family name is into the future generations. So it's an incredibly, incredibly important thing. So I appreciate your perspective on that. Now, wait, wait, let's go one more. We got time for okay. one more thing. Yeah, good more. I think we have a really interesting thing that just happened in the last week with Will Smith and the Oscars, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is an example. And I, I, I've thought about this again. I don't want to just armchair quarterback, but I've thought about if I was in that situation, you know, how would I have responded from a position of strength? And this is something I think we should all think about is when you respond from a position of strength, it doesn't necessarily mean using your fist, sure. right? So Will, if you think about like, well, first let's talk about Jada real quick. She has a condition where she has hair loss and she has decided to embrace it and shave her head. And she's obviously uncomfortable about it, but she's trying to take the strong position to embrace this publicly, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when Chris Rock mentioned G.I. Jane, if you remember, did you, have you seen that movie? Uh, I'm familiar with it culturally. I, I know what it was about, yeah. Yeah, in that movie, when, when she shaves her head, that is an, a moment of empowerment, right. actually. She's shaving her head because it's like, I'm going to go be a seal. I'm going to be one of these guys. I'm going to overcome and have power. Right. So it's interesting. You know, I think if Jada had, when, when he, when Chris Rock made that comment, if she had been like, heck yeah, I'm GI Jane too, or been like, yeah, you know, like if she had embraced it from a position of strength, mm -hmm. how would Will have reacted? Would sure. he have gone up there and slapped Chris Rock? No way. No. Cause she would have demonstrated strength. Let's say that she continued, let's say that she didn't do, that. she did what she did. She was upset, having a bad day, feeling not confident. How could he have handled that differently? He defended his wife's honor, right? He, you could make the argument that he did that by slapping Chris Rock, right? You could make the argument he defended his wife's honor, but he could have defended his wife's honor in a, in a position of strength that was different, right? Of course. Right? 
he could have. Imagine a situation where he walked up there, put his arm around Chris Rock and whispered in his ear, hey, I'd like you to make a public apology right now because what you just did was embarrassing for me and my wife. And then he walked back to his seat. What would have happened then, right? Chris Rock might have publicly apologized and suddenly now Will Smith looks like, wow, he's strong, courageous, used his mind, you know? So I don't know. There's just different ways you can handle every situation. And, and sometimes the position of strength is whatever is the most difficult thing for you to do, whatever takes the most courage for you to do is probably the thing that is the stronger uh, action. Well, that's something that's interesting that you bring that up. I'll be talking about that on a future episode. I haven't been in the studio in a while recording my own episodes because I've been out uh, with the baby. But uh, with that situation, it, it's it's people that take themselves way too seriously. It's people that are incredibly fragile because the only people that respond to jokes with violence are people that are very, very insecure. Yeah. And there are a lot of things and all these people that are like, oh, he stood up for his wife. It's like the, he he's also a cuck. He's also a guy that likes either watching or knowing about his wife getting, you know, railed by another dude. And so it's like, now's your time where you're going to stand up for your wife's honor. But, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people and then we'll, we'll get towards the end of the show here. I've talked to a lot of people that are very, very dangerous. So these are people that I train with. Maybe they're, they're world-class fighters. Maybe they've competed in fighting. These are just very, very dangerous dudes. And I've asked them, because I'm uh, I'm an aspiring dangerous dude, right? So uh, that's what I'm, I'm working my way towards. And I asked this one guy in particular. I'll leave him out because I didn't say I would, uh, you know, share this publicly, so I didn't get his permission. So his his he's more of a reserved guy, very very chill guy. He's not the type of guy that you would be intimidated by because he's just a regular looking dude. Now his wife can be a, a little bit of a loud mouth, like she can she can get offended. She's got kind of this big personality or whatever. And I asked him. I said, Hey, man. What if some guy at a bar was like making comments towards your wife, maybe, maybe trying to pick her up or, or maybe making fun of her, or making fun of you? Like, what would you do? He's like, leave, uh, you know, get our stuff and leave. And then, then I was like, okay, so, so let's say she started like mouthing, right? And when y'all's way out the door, she starts mouthing, what would you do? And he's like, I would usher her out more quickly. And I'm like, okay, okay. Let's say a, a guy put his hand on her, like, you know, touched her, po poked her in the shoulder or like smacked her butt as he, she was walking by or something like that. And then he goes, well, then it's on. And so yeah. the thing for this is this is a very comfortable guy, a very dangerous guy. He will freaking kill you if he has to. And he has the capabilities of it, but he's like, you can't say anything to me. There's no magic word or magic phrase that you can use towards me or the people around me to make me put hands on you. But the moment you enter my physical bubble and, and you break through that wall, it's over for you. And I've, I've always internalized that and thought about that. Like what would have been great is if Will Smith had gone backstage during the commercial break and said, you know, talk to Chris Rock as a man. Cause here he is much bigger than Chris Rock, much yeah. more physically imposing and said, Hey brother, I, I know that you made that joke. I know Jada has done public uh, engagements where she's talked about alopecia and how she's strong and how she's, she's going to overcome it. And it's not really that big a deal, but you know what? She actually is pretty sensitive about that. And I know you've probably heard some stuff about her and 
guys relationship. But if you wouldn't mind, maybe you don't have to do this publicly, but if you could just go up and maybe smooth things over with her, like I told her I was going to come talk to you. If you wouldn't mind, I think that would mean a lot to her. Yeah. That's even stronger because you're not putting your personal issues into the public sphere and all that. But again, I promise I'm going to talk about this on a later episode, guys. Don't you worry. But I was really interested that you brought that up. But we do kind of need to bring this to a close because you've already gotten more time than Jeff. So he's going to think I like you more. Um, so we, we got to keep you guys even, right? Yeah, but yeah. You may not remember this. You probably will. I do a lightning round towards the end of most of my interviews. It's called, what would you say to someone that said, and I'm going to fill in the blank. Now, last time we did this, I asked one to you. And then I would ask the next one to Jeff. We're going to do a truncated version and you're getting all of these, but these are lightning round questions. You have 30 seconds maximum to give us your thoughts on this question. So you up for it? Sure. All right, let's get to the first one. What would you say to someone that said the easiest way to deter the United States' enemies is to be strong and intimidating on the world stage? The easiest way for, for the United States to deter our enemies? Yes. Yeah, I think as long as the United States is operating from a position of strength, you know, we project position of strength. It's again, like sort of what we've been talking about, confidence, that is a deterrent. Strength is a deterrent. Absolutely. What would you say to someone that said, I just don't have time to read? I would say then you're missing out on an opportunity to grow your imagination, but also to learn. Absolutely. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, the United States' time as the dominant force in the world will soon be at an end? I would say, well... Um, <laughs> 30 seconds, clock's ticking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, you know, that's yet to be determined. Yeah, we will see. Let's. Uh, I don't want to hold my breath, but we'll see where it goes from here. What would you say to someone that said, why would I read when I can just watch television? Well, when you watch television, you're being spoon-fed the information. I think when you're a reader, you're actually an active participant in the story. You get to make decisions as you're reading about, you know, what do the characters look like? What do they mean? You get to imagine the, the TV show or the movie in your head. So it's a much it's a much more enriching activity. Right. You're much more involved. All right. A couple more here. What would you say to someone that said the United States military should be more concerned with diversity and inclusion than lethality? Should. No, I mean, I think the United States military needs to be concerned with executing the mission of the United, the objectives of the United States military. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice if we could go back to the old school thought of that. But hey, we're winding down here. We got our last question of the day. What would you say to someone that said, it's hard for me to wrap my head around Christians writing such dark and violent books? I would say that let's have a dialogue about this um, because violence is not most is not uh, single faceted, right? So this is this is not something I can answer in a lightning round but let's sit down and have a talk about it. Absolutely. Well, hey, that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, just thanks for having me on and um, look forward to coming back uh, in the future. Hey, I, I'll tell you the same thing I told Jeff. Can y'all chill out on writing so many books? All right, like when like a quarter of my interviews for the year are you guys because you keep writing books. Like I'm running out of stuff to ask you that makes me sound smart. I mean, get some, get, let's get some uh, reader questions for the next time. Have you had any good feedback from any of your readers or listeners? I have had good feedback. We even did a giveaway with the last book. We should probably do that again for this one. Maybe we can work let's that out uh, after we it. get done. But yeah, you, we'll do reader questions next time. That's a great idea. But Brian Andrews, thank you for coming back on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a great time.
There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the return appearance for Andrews and Wilson on the show. Before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to Andrews and Wilson's website, their Amazon page, their Facebook page, and also their Twitter. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.